Hello, I am your host, Mike Gelb, and welcome to The Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. My guest today is Greg Bettinelli. Greg is a partner at Upfront Ventures. Upfront is an LA early-stage venture capital fund that has been integral to the LA emerging tech ecosystem, with investments including Goat, Bird, Parachute Home, and Ring. Prior to Upfront, Greg was a CMO for LA-based Outlook, EVP of Business Development and Strategy at Livation, and held a number of leadership positions at eBay, including Senior Director of Business Development at Subhub. He is Mr. Long LA, and we talk about how LA's ecosystem has evolved, how he thinks about founder market and product market fit, and much, much more. It was simply terrific chatting with Greg, so without further ado, here's Greg. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today and coming on the show. It's great to be here, Mike, and uh, look forward to the conversation. I appreciate it. You worked at eBay, StubHub, Live Nation, and became the CMO for Outlook when uh, Nordstrom bought it. Uh, how how did you get and, and work your way into startups and consumer investing? It all stems from my experience at eBay. Um, I think it was there at a, at a really exciting time. I had a really I guess a, a pretty big job in some very dynamic categories. Um, this is kind of early 2003 and there was nothing bigger in e-commerce than eBay. Um, it was really, you know, from two, between 2003 and, and late 04, that was really peak eBay. The auctions were bigger than ever. Amazon obviously wasn't always today. And I got to work with a lot of great people and a lot of interesting things, driving a lot of product. Uh, doing a lot of business development, doing a lot of marketing. And I feel like I really got my chops for, for understanding consumer, understanding brand, understanding commerce. And that kind of led to uh, me playing an active role in the acquisition of StubHub for eBay in 2007. Uh, it got me to move down to Los Angeles in 2008 to work with Live Nation and then Hotlook and then was lucky enough to be part of that acquisition uh, of Hope Look by Nordstrom in 2011. And that kind of led to, I thought that the next thing for me to do post the operating side was to focus more on the investing side. And I'm, I've been very bullish on Los Angeles. I coined the phrase long LA, which really indicates a lot of the excitement around uh, new technology, new businesses in Los Angeles, of which a lot of them are consumer and commerce related companies. And that kind of led to to me joining Upfront Ventures in 2013. What were some of the specific learnings that, that you took from being an operator, especially at eBay and uh, and some of these other tech companies? Yeah, look, I think eBay, what I learned was how the importance of consumer engagement and consumer interaction is with a product and a service. And I distinctly remember um, an insight that was more, I'm a kind of a visual learner and an instinctual investor. Um, but in, I think it was probably early in, in, in 2003, it was when the iPod was actually booming. Um, and we would see the, on eBay, we would see this irrational action where on eBay, people would bid against each other and pay more for the iPod then they could go and buy it on apple.com or even buy it on a buy it now on eBay. And this idea of the format being more important than the function uh, around transaction e-commerce was super compelling to me. And, and actually that led me to uh, the, the Hope Book business several years later, because I had this theory that it wasn't 
since the eBay auction where people's hands were shaking on the, on the mouse pad. I know people don't use mouse pads anymore per se. Um, or, uh, but at that point using the mouse, you would shake. And it wasn't until like the Ebays and the guilt groups uh, where you would be really enamored with and surprise their product that was made available and people would act irrationally. And when people act irrationally in a positive way, it creates big business. And you see that in a lot of different categories and markets today. And so I just think observing kind of insights around how consumers react to brands, react to value propositions. That's one. The second is candidly just understanding the power of network and the importance of gross margin, margin contribution, and understanding your customer acquisition costs and your lifetime values. eBay was incredible at acquiring customers at scale and monetizing them, creating one of the great business models ever created, an inventory light, high margin business. And so that really helped me understand and look at how I evaluate businesses today based on those dynamics of unit economics, the dynamics of organic versus paid from a traffic perspective, um, and understanding just the compelling nature of how these categories of these businesses can scale in certain categories. No, that makes sense. What are some challenges when investing in consumer? And if you don't mind, I know that you don't invest in enterprise uh, B2B, what are maybe some differences between investing in consumer and enterprise? Yeah. Well, I think from a consumer perspective, and I do some in enterprise, but it's mostly around like marketing technology and, and things like that, that are one or two degrees away from the consumer. But I do have the consumer at heart. From a consumer, the difference is, um, or there's a lot of differences. But one in particular you think of is just you're, you're acquiring customers at a smaller level, meaning you're selling the enterprise, you're selling you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars per year contracts. With consumers, you could be selling $10 items or $100 items. Um, and so I think that's usually one. I think two is the consumer is probably slightly more fickle. They're, less, they're much more persuadable. I think they're probably less or more, more gravitate more to things like brands, value proposition, marketing, those types of things than pure function and scale that you might see on the enterprise side. Um, I think also in regards to consumer, but there's probably less purchase consideration, meaning that people, consumers can be much more reactive to buy things. Enterprise, the buyers tend to be much more thoughtful. They're thinking months, quarters, years in advance in regards to purchase consideration. Um, and I think consumer, the other part is there's, you know, kind of a, a bit of a, a, a different take on it is everybody's an expert in consumer. Even people in the enterprise are expert in consumer. And so you have a lot more uh, people telling you how to do things and telling you what should be done because everybody's an expert. When it comes to enterprise or other you know categories like robotics or automation or whatever it might be, um, there are just few subject matter experts. And so therefore there's less chatter about your business. I think you know one thing I've seen definitely over the past few years is everybody's an expert in consumer businesses, um, whether they have that expertise or not. I think that's well said. Tell me a little bit about Upfront Ventures. And uh, I understand that you invest in both seed and series A. And what are some differences in those stages when uh, when conducting your, your due diligence on companies? Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. Um, so Upfront Ventures, just a little context. Um, when we're recording this now, we're investing out of our sixth fund. And so we're about a $400 million early stage fund. We're based in Santa Monica. We have uh, eight partners now, 
Um, almost all of us are based in Los Angeles or Santa Monica where offices are. We do, like you said, early stage investing. I think the vernacular of the stage, I don't know if that matters as much anymore, but our average first check is about $4 million. So in today's market, that's kind of late C to, to early Series A. Um, we will go as high as Series B and we'll go as early as pre-seed. It really just depends on the opportunity. But we as a fund will, while even though we're based in Southern California and the largest traditional venture capital fund in Southern California, we do about half our deals here. And I define Southern California as Santa Barbara to San Diego. And then we compete nationally you know, in the Bay Area, New York, um, other places as well. Um, but as a firm, we have a pretty broad-based portfolio. We do a lot of consumer, we do retail innovation, we do enterprise software, marketing technology, uh, we do food tech and ag tech and various kind of other, even health tech and some bio that involves software. So it's not dissimilar to most venture capital funds today. I think me as, a, as an investor may over-index consumer, but that may be augmented by another one of my partners who does very little consumer. Thank you for that. So what... What metrics are you focused on when it comes to what in your due diligence process when you're evaluating companies? Investors will talk a lot about product market fit and it, depending on the different stage you are, you know, if you're pre-launch, you don't have a lot of product, no market and no fit, um, or maybe you have some market. And then when you're investing in a later stage, you might have all three. Um, so real, first thing, it depends on kind of where the stage of the company is. Um, I will spend at the earlier stages, I'll spend much more time on what I call founder market fit. So there really isn't a metric, but the metrics might just be specifically what the founder and what the founding team's unfair advantages in the category they're attacking. I believe that there are very few innovative ideas. Um, if you came up with the idea, I guarantee thousands of others could if they haven't yet. And so it's all about execution. And from that execution, there's some sort of insider or piece of information or experience or access to something that set out early differentiation. And then, so I really spend time identifying that. And then I think forward about if the team and the company are able to accomplish that, what's next from there? And can you see a big scalable differentiated business being built? Um, I think as companies progress, you're looking, I think, I focus on two key parts of um, two key metrics around what we're doing. One is around what the the unit economics and, and potential economic profile of the products or services we're selling look like, um, both on an individual perspective, if it's a one-off type of purchase item or in an aggregate, if it's a recurring purchase type of opportunity. Um, second is just the early viability of the products or services being sold in the market and consumers responding to them. Um, and so if we're having to spend a tremendous amount of money early in a company's life cycle to acquire customers, that's probably not something I'm interested in. Um, I think all great businesses that you think of from brands and consumer value propositions have this in or this organic growth component or this something about the brand enables it to stand apart from the rest and thus you're able to acquire customers and retain those customers for less economic costs. And those businesses that are forced to spend early and often um, to both acquire them and re-engage customers once they have purchased are just things that I, I tend not to spend a lot of time with. And so early on, those are key metrics that I'm looking for. And the third is because kind of what's the economic viability of the product you're creating or the service you're offering. So whether that's 
TAM, which is Total Drill Addressable Market, whether that is competitive set. Um, I look for categories that have little to no brand leadership or a single incumbent who is could or could be a great company, but they have such share that their ability to react and innovate may be on the decline. And so that's an opportunity for a business to disrupt. And so I tend to look for, you know, this overall market sentiment about where this product or service could be positioned. Again, not necessarily KPI, but if there is some quantitative work at understanding how big the category is, what its trends are, and what the incumbents, if there are any, are doing strategically. I really appreciate your breakdown in a founder market fit. It's something that actually on this podcast, we've talked about quite extensively. When do you know or realize that you do have product market fit for your company? That's a great question because I think it, it all depends on investors will, will use product market fit as a way to show excitement about a, a deal or to say that they're not ready for the investment and they really don't want to tell you no, no yet. Right. Because it's all this product market fit mean a hundred people are using it or a million people are using it. It really depends. And so I, I, I'd be mindful of declaring you have product market fit because it's really up for debate about what that means. Um, but I think generally thinking when I hear product market fit, there are a group of customers um, that you have targeted that are both using the product or have used the product, reused the product or services, and then are telling other people about the success of using those services. Um, and whether that's through word of mouth, whether that's through posting through social whatever, the, or even sending letters and emails to the founder saying how great the product is. Um, it could also be that the media or, you know, specific vertical publications have posted positive feedback on the product or service you're offering. To me, those are the components of product market fit. Um, I could also make the argument that you have some basis of understanding both unit economics and the ability to what's going to acquire customers and scale. So you have some visibility into at scale, here's what this business could look like from a financial statement perspective. Um, now, I can make the argument that I have companies doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue in our portfolio, and arguably they still might not have product market fit because there's something around the unit economics aren't perfect, or what happens in real, real time is the goalposts move and suddenly you're striving to move from being wanting to be a hundred million dollar company to a billion dollar company. And what you need to do that is very different. And so that's not something you think about in the early stages, but the reality is the go posts are always moving um, because the more success you have, the bigger you want the company to be and the greater expectations that investors, team members, business partners, et cetera, have on the business. So um, I do think it all comes down to, you kind of know it when you see it. Um, and your ability to recognize it, but candidly, as important as your ability to convey it to others, is important. And I think a role of a founder is more than just building the product in the business. You have to be able to sell the product in the business. And by that, I mean, you have to potentially get access to capital, whether that's equity investment or getting access to debt um, from banks or alternative investment opportunities. You have to be able to recruit talent you have to be able to convince suppliers of your product uh, to you know, build and spend their time in hopes that you're going to get paid by you. You have to talk to business partners and distribution partners. So your ability to convey that product market fit 
is as important as finding product market fit. If that makes no, sense. it does. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that. that those are some great points, uh, especially the the know it when you see it. I think that's very evident, especially in consumer. I I'm really glad that you brought up scaling and and growth, and I wanted to know what good growth looks like versus bad growth. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not a rocket science, but I'm smart enough to read an income statement, and I think you have to understand you know, above the line and below the line from a, what revenue, you know, if your cost of goods sold are greater than the, the sales, that's a bad thing. You know, negative margin businesses. Um, there are some who maybe have justified that, but in reality, um, and I think in an ever changing market, when we're talking now, I would say the market is very negative on negative gross margin businesses, regardless of the stage. Um, and so that hasn't always been the case. Um, but I think in November of 2019, it definitely feels that way. Um, so that's what was, the other is just understanding how much money you're spending on marketing relative to how much revenue that's driving, both first-time purchase revenue as well as long, potential long-term value. So if you're acquiring a bunch of customers who are coming in, buying something, and never coming back to buy it again, that would be bad revenue. Because I can, you can give me a million dollars, I can get $500,000 of sales all day long. But it's the question is, if you spend a million dollars, can you get $10 million of sales all day long? Um, and so there are, when I look at bad revenue, it's just, it's just dollars being used to acquire customers and purchase purchases that just aren't reoccurring or repeatable in nature, or have negative unit economics where you're just giving $2 to get a dollar, which, even with great volume, you can't make that up. Those are some great points. Let's talk a little bit as well about the uh, LA venture capital and startup scene. What has been that transformation in the past you know, five to 10 years that's been going on in Los Angeles? Yeah, look, it's been pretty remarkable, actually. I mean, I think um, LA has always been uh, a leading entrepreneurial type of geography forever. Um, uh, but it just wasn't historically in what you think of as tech or really, you know, Silicon Valley tech. Um, but we've always been at the core of the consumer, right? From the studios, obviously, think of Disney. Um, uh, if you think of content, you know, arguably the most creative people in the world have historically migrated to Los Angeles. And I think that's no different now. What's different now is that creativity is being used around more technology and software-enabled businesses than has historically done before. Um, so if you look at content in particular, um, you have, you know, we'll talk about Disney. If you think about what's happening today, this is today's the launch of Disney Plus, right? Um, and so Netflix, YouTube, uh, Amazon Prime, Hulu, all pretty much are now based in Los Angeles as companies, right? From a gaming perspective, you have Riot Games, um, which it owns League of Legends. Um, it's a $10 billion plus business. You have Activision Blizzard, arguably the, you know, the top, I think it's a $50 plus billion business um, based in Los Angeles. So thinking about content, gaming and video content, uh, which are the drivers of those categories based in LA. From a commerce perspective, there's been a lot of innovation around commerce in Los Angeles, which is super interesting from, you know, even the, the honor companies of the world um, through super interesting 
marketplace type businesses like you know goats and, and others which is a sneaker marketplace that we're an investor in um, that's been super compelling so i think consumer and commerce are growing and then you have communications which is kind of an underappreciated part but arguably the two most innovative companies mobile first companies that have really emerged in the past 10 years other than say instagram are are tinder and snapchat um, and I won't count the TikToks and other, but think of the domestic-based businesses. You know, swipe left, swipe right was created in LA. Uh, the messaging capability of Snapchat was created in Los Angeles um, or scaled in Los Angeles. And so you just have a lot of innovative consumer features and functionalities around the communication side uh, that is super compelling. And then you kind of anchor it with, you know, historically we have a lot of a, a lot of big tech and you know this uh, there was a time when southern california was the heart of all things aerospace and businesses like spacex uh which is based in los angeles as well and that kind of anchors around the fact that we have great institutions like caltech um jpl in pasadena we have ucla we have usc we have uc irvine uc santa barbara just the the there's a lot of inherent and i think that's really all come to play in the past 10 years once the core part of the internet was built and the application layer